Good morning to the Stories Timber Grove campus at 8200 Washington Ave. I'm so glad y'all are there and that you're part of the story this morning. I'm so proud of everything going on over there under um, Pastor Kale's leadership and how that community, your community, is growing. And I can't wait to be back over with, there with you in person soon. And if you're new to the story through our Timber Grove campus, uh, let me introduce myself. I'm Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at the story. I also want to say hi to everyone that's joining us online. And if you're watching online this morning, you're part of the story as well. Wherever you are, you're here with us in spirit. And so I'm really, uh, really glad that you are. I'm recording this message from our brand new uh, campus in the Museum District of Houston. We are thrilled with this new home of ours. God has just come through in miraculous ways, and we are in love with our new uh, HQ over here at 4910 Montrose Boulevard. And um, if you haven't seen it yet, come see us uh, some Sunday uh, for, for a worship service. It's really, really special what's happening here. And, and um, I, you know, these pre-recordings, they have uh, been going on ever since we first started moving out of our old home in the River Oaks area. And, uh, you know, our team always has fun when we get together and, uh, and we do these recordings. Uh, but I think I can speak for the whole team and say uh, we can't wait for us to get back to some normalcy where we're live streaming the Sunday services again. And uh, I know some of y'all feel the same way. Um, I had a very interesting heart-to-heart uh, -heart conversation with someone I consider a close friend. She's gone to this church for several years, and uh, she told me that for her, these pre-recorded messages just aren't the same. She said, and I quote, I like to call it robot church, Eric, because you look so stiff and uncomfortable. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, well, April, I'd like to call you uh, Karen because you say mean things and hurt my feelings. Um, but I didn't say that. I just thought it because I'm a pastor and you have to keep those things to yourself. Anyway, April and the whole church, I've got good news for us all uh, because very soon we're going to be getting back to those live stream Sunday morning services in just a, a matter of a couple of weeks. And we are all very excited about that. Let me get to today's message now. This is a part three of a three-part series called The Questions Jesus Asked. And we have study guides again now. I haven't mentioned those in our uh, online messages yet, but, but we have uh, been producing those now for this whole series. You can find them in a link in the comments section. Whatever platform you're watching on right now, you just click that link and you can track down our study guide that we prepared for this message. Also, those of you at Timbergrove should have a hard copy that you were given when you came in uh, to the service this morning. So uh, this series is about the questions Jesus asked to his followers and his hearers. People that asked him questions often got questions back at them from him, and he just loved asking questions and getting people to think. It's one of the things I love most about Jesus, and it's one of the reasons why the story is so often reflecting on and, and worshiping and, and preaching about some of the questions that we have on a daily basis. Jesus asked something like 307 questions um, during his ministry, and those are just the ones that got written down. I'm sure there were many, many more. And as a curious, kind of skeptical person myself, I can really appreciate this about Jesus. So we've been talking about these for the last couple of weeks, and today we're finishing up this series by looking at a question that Jesus asked, and here it is. He asked, if you only love the people who love you, then what reward will you get? If you only love the people who love you, what reward will you get? And that's, uh, he asked it on a number of occasions. Sometimes he said it like, if you only love your brothers and sisters, then how are you any different from the pagans, he would say. 
And, uh, and this, is a, this is a tough one because obviously it's easier for us to love people that love us back. Uh, or, or it's easier for us to love people that we're obligated to love, like a spouse or a child or a family member. Now, um, I, I want to do what we've done the last couple of weeks. And as a way of setting the table for this bigger conversation, I want us to look back to Genesis. We've done this since... Um, since part one of this series, where we take a question Jesus asked and we reflect back to the very beginning of Scripture, and we look at what the, what the Bible says about the same issue that Jesus raised with his question. I want to do the same thing today. And remember last week, we explored that Jesus question about hell, which was a fun message, I'm sure, to receive. It was uh, <laughs> super fun to deliver. Uh, everybody's Everybody loves hearing and talking about <laughs> hell. But during that sermon, we revisited um, a familiar story, the one of Genesis 3, where the serpent tempted Eve and Adam to take the forbidden fruit. And it's the story of original sin, right? And in the aftermath of that first sin, when sin entered the picture, we see immediately the side effects of sin that are so familiar to us all. Right after they took the forbidden fruit and ate of it, they felt... Uh, fragmented. They, they felt separated from God and from each other. They felt naked. They had been naked the whole time, but for the first time they felt it and they were ashamed of it. And they covered them, their, their private parts with, uh, with some fig leaves that they somehow sewed together, which I can only imagine they sewed those fig leaves together with like a strand of Eve's hair, because what else would they have had to sew back in, uh, in the Garden of Eden, right? So they, they just made do to cover themselves as best they could. They hid from God. They ran from God. They lied to God immediately after they sinned. And, and we can all relate to that. When shame takes hold, we run, we hide, we lie, we, we pass the blame, um, we cover up oftentimes, and we experience separation from God, just like Adam and Eve did. But here's the interesting thing that's important for today's conversation. Even though the people created the separation between them and God, God did not keep his distance. God came near. God came searching for them, even though they gave him every reason to disavow them, to do away with them and dispose of them, because they, he created them to be in communion with him. and He wasn't enough for them. You can imagine how that betrayal might lead him to be resentful, but it did not. Because as we're going to see today, God is not like us. Um, um, he came to them where they were at. He met them there. And they had a tough conversation about sin and consequences. And Adam and Eve would, as God said, um, have to leave the garden that God planted and go out into the wilderness and plant their own. Adam was, was condemned from that point to work the earth and till the soil. And Eve, on the other hand, and all the women after her, were condemned to give birth in the utmost pain that a human can experience. Um, and it feels like, ladies, y'all might have gotten the short end of the stick on this one. Would you rather plant a garden or birth a baby? Uh, I think guys got off, got off a little bit easy. But uh, nonetheless, uh, God made clear these, uh, these consequences. And, uh, and the truth is, their sin made both of their lives a struggle. And that's the struggle that we call the human condition. It's a condition under which every human being has been living and struggling ever since Adam and Eve and the first sin was committed. Now, it's easy to look at this passage in Genesis 3, the story, and think this just isn't fair. It seems arbitrary. It seems archaic and, and cruel, really. What kind of God would create humans 
for communion, knowing that we would fall. God must have known that, that, that at least there was a good chance we would fall. Yeah, I think he knew that we would fall, that we would fall out of communion with him, that, that humanity would live in this condition we're in now. And he created us anyway. And then when we did fall, like he knew that we would, he held us accountable for something he knew would happen. How is this fair? How does this work? It's easy to get to the place where in our simple-mindedness we condemn God. But uh, while I understand that perspective, I think it lacks uh, nuance. I think it lacks understanding of what this story is really saying. Because the most important part of this story isn't what the people did, it's what God does and who God is. God is the main character in Scripture. Now, never forget that. If you think it's about people and, and we're the spotlight, no, no, no. God is the main character. We're, we're, we're role players in this story. We're uh, best supporting actors at best, all right? And, uh, and what does God say here? What's the point of, uh, of what, what kind of God do we find here? Well, uh, I think the, the major theme of Scripture is that the love of God is unconditional, the love of God is not uh, contingent on our good behavior. That's a recurring theme. The love of God never fails, and one day the love of God will overcome. And even in the darkest moments in the Bible, you see the love of God just peeking through the darkness. You see it again and again. For example, look, look at Genesis 3 again. Uh, picture Adam and Eve in the immediate aftermath of that original sin. Picture them in that garden. They uh, have uh, their genitals covered haphazardly by these <laughs> fig leaves they've somehow sewn together, and they're trembling, standing, terrified before the one true God. And God, after leveling with them about their consequences of their sin, uh, he, then, he then does something so sweet that's so easy to miss in Genesis 3. We find this sweet little verse in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3 where it says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them before they left the garden. The Lord God took a moment and knit together some real clothes to cover them. Even though he made them to be, I guess, naked and free, when the shame took over, God met them in their shame and helped them to be covered in a way that was more substantial than fig leaves. He made clothes for these sinners. How beautiful is that? Even though God had every reason to turn his back on them, he went to them, searched for them, saw them in their shame, and then he made them better clothes than the ones that they had. And this is the love of God that's on display throughout the Bible, the whole Bible. Not just Jesus in the New Testament, but the whole Bible is a story of God's love that will overcome eventually. And God's love is so unlikely at times like these. In the story of original sin, you think darkness and, and depravity and hell. No, God's making clothes for these depraved sinners and making sure they'll be okay. It's a beautiful thing, the love of God. And it continues throughout the Old Testament, even in the law in Leviticus. Leviticus is a love story. I've talked a lot about this. Leviticus has a bad reputation, I know, but Leviticus is a love story about God's desire to keep his people holy and healthy, alive and well. 
And then we get to the New Testament where we find Jesus, who we call as Christians the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of God's love. Jesus embodies the perfect love of God. And he comes and teaches, and not just teaches, he shows by his life, death, and resurrection what it means to live love. And in today's passage, we're going to hear today's question about why do we just love the people who love us? What reward will we get? And I want you to hear the whole context. It's from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 43. So grab your Bibles if you have them, and uh, if you don't, um, well, bring your Bible next week. That's all I'll say, okay? And uh, you can pull out your phone even and get your Bible app out. I like the Bible Gateway app for, for reading during worship, Bible Gateway. It's a free app, and uh, you can find your, uh, your passage pretty easily. Matthew 5, verse 43 is where we will begin. This is Jesus saying, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So when Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, speaking to a Jewish audience, he's talking about some of the Old Testament teachings that were the law of God, but they were not the fulfillment or the fullness of God's law. And so you'll have teachings in the Old Testament like love your neighbor, um, which is Leviticus uh, 19, 18, I think, uh, and elsewhere. And then you don't have verses that say hate your enemy. That's not in the Bible anywhere. But you can, if you're looking for a reason to hate your enemy, you can find certain verses in the Old Testament that can get you there if that's what you really want to find. Like uh, Deuteronomy 23 has a passage about how um, when someone is, uh, is not living in compliance with the health and, and safety code of the law, you can ostracize them and treat them like a pagan, like an enemy. And there's bits and pieces of the Bible there that, that can be plucked out and, and made to sound like it's okay to hate your enemy as long as you love your neighbor, right? Jesus is, Jesus is fulfilling this. He's bringing it all full circle and showing us the full heart of God. He says, pray for those who persecute you, verse 45 now, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That, that's, a, that, that's an allusion to like imitating, Right? Children are, are little copies of their parents. You may be a child of your father means to be like him, to look like him, to live like him. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? The word reward there is actually um, the same word as salary or payment or dues, like what will you get at the end of the day when your work is done? What earnings will you get for that kind of love? He says, are not even the tax collectors doing that? Tax collectors were the most hated people in first century Judaism. They were traitors, Jewish guys that were recruited by Rome to collect Jewish taxes. They were despised. He said, even they can love the people that love them back. <laughs> Who can't, right? Verse 47, and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a tall order from Jesus. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, that, that word love that appears here in this passage, um, it's very important that we understand Jesus specifically uses the Greek word agape here, and there's, you, as you probably know, if you've been to any like 
any preacher's sermon about, about love, <laughs> we always say the same thing. There's at least four different kinds of love in the Greek, right? There's uh, eros, which is a sexual or sensual love. Uh, storgia, which is a familial love. Um, there's phileo, which is uh, the brotherly, uh, what's up, bro, kind of love. <laughs> That's the most casual kind. And then there's agape, which is the perfect love of God, really. But, but the Greeks used it like uh, to describe the kind of love that is not a feeling, but it's a choice. It's a love of the will, not the emotions. The other kinds of love can be chalked up to emotions or instincts or obligation. Only agape is the love of the will. And Jesus is saying, if you say you willfully love people that love you back, what is that even? Is that even your will or is that just what you're supposed to do? He says, to really love like God loves, with agape love, it means to will yourself to love those who may be unlovable to you, those for whom you have no feelings to speak of, those folks that are really hard to love. That's who you love with agape love. That's the point Jesus is making here, and that's why this is such a challenge for us as Christians today. Think about someone that you just frankly love to hate. Maybe it's not even a person whose name you know. Maybe it's a type of person who, for whatever reason, they've ended up on your, on your naughty list. They're, they're the type of person that has done you wrong in the past, that has hurt you in some way. Or maybe the media has scared you uh, into, uh, into hating certain groups of people. Or maybe your upbringing raised you to hate certain kinds of folks. Like, there's this sinful prejudice in all of us that we have to reckon with because it's the ones in our lives who we find it most difficult to love that agape love would have us to love. Not because we feel like it, but because we, are, we choose. We choose to love them. When I was in the Holy Land with our group of 60-something from the story, just before COVID broke loose, um, which I think it broke loose on us when we were, <laughs> it was before anybody knew what COVID was, but I'm pretty sure our whole group got sick. And um, in the audio clips, I'm going to play you in a minute from some of our interviews over there. You can hear people coughing in the background. And now I just look back and go, why weren't we wearing masks? Like, <laughs> it's easy to judge from, from this vantage point. One of the guys that we met over there is named Daoud Nassar. And Daoud is, uh, is the leader of, uh, of a farm called the Tent of Nations. Um, Daoud is a uh, Palestinian Arab Christian. And what was so fascinating in talking to him uh, and as he is caught in the crosshairs or the crossfire of this, of this uh, ongoing battle in the Holy Land, is that I had talked to Arab Palestinian Muslims who are furious at their enemies, uh, who include the Zionists, the Israeli government, um, maybe more broadly Jews, but, but most Palestinian Arabs wouldn't say that. They would say it's the Zionists and Americans that support them that are their mortal enemies. And then I would talk to some Israelis who would consider themselves Zionists, maybe um, some of the settlers and some of the settlements, and, and they feel like their cry has not been heard, and they've been taking these rockets and shellackings from Palestinians, and, and innocent people are being killed, and, and they feel like they have hate toward their counterparts. Daoud stood right in the middle of this as a Palestinian, Arab, but a Christian, who is supported, his farm is supported largely by 
you know, white Western Christians who are known for being allies with Israel. And Daoud is the only one I spoke to the whole time I was in the Holy Land who gave me a sense of hope, any hope whatsoever of there ever being peace in, um, in the Holy Land. And in this first clip uh, that I'd like to play for you from my interview with him, I just asked him how, um, how he decided to name his family farm the Tent of Nations and, and what really inspired him to create a place of hope right there in the occupied uh, Palestinian territory. Um, so here it is, uh, Daoud uh, Nassar from, uh, from just five miles southwest of Bethlehem. And that's why, in order to stay on the right track, we said four things that became our principle. The first thing we said, we refuse to be victims. It was important, although we have the right to be victims in this mm -hmm. situation, but right. refusing to be victim in order to move ourselves out of the victim mentality, in order to start acting instead of reacting, mm. and to start acting in a different way. Secondly, we said, we refuse to hate, and no one can force us to hate. Of course, it's easy said, difficult to practice, and we are all humans. Right. Yeah? But um, we said with hatred, we would destroy ourselves. And we believe that all people are created in the image of God, and they are not created to hate each other. Thirdly, we said we are acting differently, not because it's a weakness or a strategy. No, it is based on our faith. So our Christian faith is the center of our way of nonviolent resistance. You know, mm -hmm. like the Sermon on the Mount is right. something that we live, we have to live as Christians, you know. So, and fourthly, we said we are people who believe in justice. And although the way for justice is too difficult, too complicated, but one day the sun of justice will rise again. Mm. So with those four principles, you know, we were very motivated and we stood up and we walked on a different path and we created on the farm another way of resistance. We created a nonviolent, in a creative, in a constructive way, under the slogan, we refuse to be enemies. And under that slogan, we created the Tent of Nations. So one thing that I found so striking about Daoud is just the, the love that's in his voice. And of all people, Daoud has every reason and right to be hateful and venge vengeful and vindictive. But he chooses not to be a victim. He chooses not to be an enemy. He chooses to love everyone on both sides of that never-ending conflict in his homeland. And no one likes him for that. I mean, he has enemies in the Arab-Palestinian world because most of them are Muslims and he's a Christian. He has enemies on the other side, the Jewish or Zionist side, the Israelite side, because he's an Arab-Palestinian who refuses to, to let go of his land under any circumstances as uh, the settlements expand in, uh, in the Palestinian territory. And so uh, no one's on his side but God. And, uh, and, and yet he has refused to give his heart over to hate like so many others have. Look, I talked to people on both sides and no one gave me any hope or any reason to believe that there will ever be a breakthrough in the Holy Land of people that are, their heels are dug in on the Palestinian side or their heels are dug in on the Israel side. Only Daoud, the Palestinian Arab Christian, gave me any hope of any breakthrough ever happening. And it's because Daoud is committed to love, not the touchy-feely emotional love 
that we often think of, but the agape love of God, the love of the will. He has chosen to love Palestinian Arab Muslims, his neighbors, and to love all of Israel, even though parts of Israel continue to encroach on his land and destroy his farm. And what's really tragic is Daoud, just in the last week, Daoud and his wife and several others on their farm were attacked physically, attacked, assaulted, beaten to a pulp. He's been hospitalized ever since, and thousands of their trees were destroyed. They always go after the trees because they want to make the farm worthless, and all indications are that it's uh, sort of special ops folks from the uh, Israeli side, but nothing's been proven there. But Daoud, even in these circumstances, in the darkest of days, he refuses to give his heart over to hate. It's really convicting for me because I find people to be quite aggravating. Just today, I've had a, the most aggravating day. This week, I've had an aggravating week. Do people ever just get on your nerves and act completely unlovable? We're supposed to love them? And think about some of the people in your life that are the hardest to love. This week, I was standing in line at Academy Sports and and I was uh, paying too much for some Little League baseball stuff, and I didn't like that. And then, and then this woman, um, who looked to be kind of well-to-do, pretty put together, and um, kind of clean-cut, looking, nice-looking lady, and she comes uh, racing up the aisle, uh, up the checkout line where I was paying for my stuff, and her hands were full of stuff, and she said very politely to my son and I, excuse me, and we let her by, and then she bolted out the door, breaking the automatic door on her way out, maybe breaking her shoulder too, because that was a collision. And no one did anything. And Academy's uh, employees were like, no, we don't do it. We just have to let them go now. They used to let us chase them or call the cops or something. Now there's really nothing we can do. Uh, that, I found that extremely aggravating. And I don't know why. It wasn't my stuff they were stealing. <laughs> but I was sitting here paying a high price for this gear, and I thought to myself, why don't I just take off with this? <laughs> you know how resentment can play on your, your emotions? And, and I just found myself growing resentful of this woman that I didn't know. Then just this morning, on my way to preach this sermon, this always happens to me. It's like Jesus and the Good Samaritan parable when he's talking about religious guys going on their way to the temple and refusing to stop to help people. On my way to this message, um, I witnessed an accident um, near my home, like right in front of me, it was just a few feet in front of me. It was a really bad accident. And one of the cars involved looked just like Pastor Gio's car. If you don't know us, Pastor Gio is my wife, and we live right around the corner. I thought for sure that was her car, and it was her in the accident, and it really freaked me out. It wasn't her, but I still stopped and took care of folks and made sure everybody was okay. And, but the lady whose fault it was kept coming after me, saying, if I testify that her husband's going to come and find me. <laughs> I thought, wow, I'm married to Giovanna. Nothing can scare me, right? Like, <laughs> I've been dealing with strong women my whole life. You can't intimidate me, woman. It's like, but, but still, I was, <laughs> I was aggravated. People can be so unlovable, so rigid, and so, uh, have such an edge to them that it makes it hard for us to love them. But when we think about why Christians are called to love everyone, it's pretty simple. There's three things that came to mind for me. The first is we love everyone because God loves everyone. There was a meme recently um, from the Babylon Bee, which is a satire site. This is not real news, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> you're going to know when you read the headline. But the satire site said, God decides to cut all toxic people out of his life. 
7.5 people dead, meaning <laughs> we are all toxic. You know how people are always saying, I'm going to cut out all the toxicity in my life, all the toxic people, they're gone this year, like a New Year's resolution. If God decided to do that, we would all be wiped out, but we're all still here. What does that tell us about the love of God? He does not love like we do. He loves us even when we are toxic. The second point is we Christians are called to love everyone because we're not like everyone. And, and we learn this from the love of God. And this is uh, spelled out for us in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Um, look at what the Apostle Paul, who knew very well what it meant to be loved by God, even though he was toxic because he was uh, killing Christians and overseeing their persecution uh, just a few years before he wrote these words as a leader in the church. Paul wrote, you see, this is verse 6 of chapter 5 in Romans. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. For people who, who were not feeling the faith. People that were not loving him back. He died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though a good person Someone might possibly dare to die for them. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Christ? For if while we were God's, here it is, enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Though we were enemies of God. He loved us still, not because he felt like it or because we gave him reason to, because he willed it, because that's who he is. When the Bible says God is love, it means it. That is his essence. And he wills himself to love even the most unlovable. Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive the soldiers for putting me here. They don't know what they're doing. And then the historical record plays out for us this storyline of the gospel spreading through the ranks of Roman soldiers, some of the most faithful Christians in the first few centuries, the ones who paid for the building of the first Christian churches were Roman soldiers, including some centurions. Why? I think it's because the guys at the cross might have become evangelists because they drove nails through that man's body and he still loved them and forgave them, although they were toxic to him, to say the least. Love is the primary marker of your salvation. If Christ is in you, his love will be in you too. And if Christ is really in you, you will be compelled to love the unlovable. The more you fall in love with Christ, the more you'll fall in love with the people you find to be aggravating. Love is always primary in scripture. What's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God. The most important commandment, Jesus said, love God. What's the second most important commandment? Love your neighbor. Like love is first in scripture. What are, the, what are the, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit? Love is first. Love and then joy, peace, patience, kindness. But none of the others even compare. For these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, Paul said. 
And in that same chapter where he wrote those words, he wrote this about love. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul wrote, If I speak in tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I'm just a gong or a cymbal clanging. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and, and all the knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but I don't have love, I am nothing because I am not with God because God is love. This is what Paul is saying. He says, if I give everything I have to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is primary. It's the primary sign of God really at work in your life. If you want to know how you're doing with Jesus, how are you loving? Not just your neighbors, but your enemies, your adversaries, the people you've always found it most difficult to love. So first, we love because God, we love everyone because God loves everyone. Second, we love everyone because we are not like everyone, not anymore. Not when Christ is in us, showing us how he died for us when we were his enemies. We can't keep hating like we have in the past. And third, we love everyone because everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs the love of Jesus. And once you have him in your life, you know just how desperately the world is in need of Jesus. And so how can we not spend our lives loving people into his arms, loving people into his presence? You think you're going to convince someone who hates God to give Jesus a chance by showing them how much you know? Or by condescending them? Or by judging them? Or by shaming them? No, the only way to win in the world and the, the fights you find yourself up against and the struggle that we're in is by way of love. Love is the only weapon that conquers hearts and minds today. It's the only way to overcome whatever adversaries you're up against. The love of God, the agape love of God. This is something Daoud knows very well. Daoud um, continued to share with us about some of the struggles that he's had with his uh, neighbors and adversaries in, uh, in the Holy Land. And, and he talked about his strategy. His, uh, why is he so committed to choosing love over hate and refusing to be a victim or an enemy? Listen to his words here about what he has seen love do to people who used to be his enemy. We try to open people's eyes, right. ears and hearts, to listen, to see and understand. More than that, you know, this planting a seed. As a farmer, we are planting seeds. Your job is to plant the seed. Exactly. After speaking with Rania and Bob, I found myself asking questions like, what's the best answer to this problem? How's this ever gonna work out? But after speaking with Daoud, I found myself asking altogether different questions. Questions like, what does it mean to take responsibility for a gift someone has given you? What does it mean to be a neighbor? How would Jesus handle a conflict like this one? These questions may seem less pragmatic or even unhelpful to some, but to me, questions like these may be our only hope in the Holy Land. Although people like Daoud represent a small minority in the region, they may hold the only key that unlocks this puzzle Daoud brings something different to the table that neither Rania nor Bob can claim. His faith in a God who laid down his own life to express his love for all people 
is what gives Daoud the ability to change the conversation from one state versus two state to how can we love one another. Daoud and others like him are doing all that they can to be heard above the noise of encroaching bulldozers and exploding rockets. And we need to hear them. And not only because love is the only answer in the Holy Land, but also because love is the best answer to every struggle we ever face. Man, hearing those words from Daoud now, um, knowing what he's gone through in the last week or so um, after the assault and uh, the attack on his farm, uh, it just really it rings even truer than it did the first time I heard them. But Daoud, his patience and peace of mind just gives me such hope that there are people in some of the darkest places on earth where violence and injustice reign supreme and have for generations people that still hold on to the love of God in Christ because they know so intimately what Jesus has done and what his love means to them. It's just so, it's overwhelming. And that's really, that's really the point I want to make here to finish up is, is that we who follow Jesus love everyone first because God loves everyone, second because we're not like everyone, not anymore. God has made us different by loving us even when we were toxic and his, and his enemies. But third, as Daoud shows us here, we're called to love everyone because everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs the love of God in their lives, whether they're Palestinian Muslims or whether they're Jewish Zionists or you know, whether they're shooting rockets or whether they're bringing the bulldozers or, or, or whether they're running out of academy arms full of stuff and in front of my son and I or whether, you know, or whether they're threatening me at, a, at the site of a car accident this morning. Like, there's always a deep need, a, a desperation underneath the depravity and that's one of the reasons why I love that we're called the Story Church. It's really about the Bible being the story of God's love for us. But, but it really also reminds us that every single person has a story to tell. And, and a lot of times the stuff we see on the surface that's so aggravating and so difficult to love, it's really just a presenting symptom of something much deeper in their story, in their past, someone who hurt them or a lot of someones who hurt them. And, and it's incumbent on us as Christians who have been saved by the grace of God when we were toxic enemies of God and Jesus laid his life down for us. It's incumbent upon us to love in the same way, not because we feel like it, but with agape love. By our will, we choose to love even the unlovable because God loves everyone and because we're not like everyone, not anymore, not in Christ. We're called to be holy to a higher standard and because everyone needs Jesus. And the only, the only way to break through with people who are far from God and desperately in need of his love is by showing them what that love looks like. It's not, it's not by talking them into it or arguing them into it or judging them into it or condemning them or shaming them into it. You will never see the breakthrough that you'd like to see in your unbelieving friends, family, co-workers, adversaries, enemies, whoever, until you choose to love them by your will, unconditionally, the way God first loved you. But when you choose that kind of love, you discover what a powerful thing it is, how irresistible and overwhelming it can be. Maybe not right away. But love someone consistently with agape love, over time you will start to see change in them. 
just as God did with you. And when Paul says, you know, you, you can be a prophet with all the knowledge, you can be the most religious person, go to church, lift your hands, right? You can be the number one Christian on the surface, but if you lack love, it's meaningless. If you lack agape, it means nothing. Because Jesus has something better for you than just religion. And if you're here today, you think religion is the job, and at the end of the day, you get paid with heaven. You've oversimplified something that's, that's a little more nuanced than that. Jesus wants to give us a promotion from religion to living the love of God, the agape love of God. When he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, it's a high, high, high goal, and I'm intimidated by that. I might never reach the level of being perfect without sin, but I believe that God's Spirit can show us over time how to love perfectly, how to perfectly love a broken world the same way God loves us. And that's my prayer, that God would show me how to love perfectly, even the least lovable even the ones I find it most difficult to love, even the ones who come at me with accusations or come at me with persecutions, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because my love for them as people created in the image of God is not contingent on their behavior toward me. That's what agape looks like. And, and the reward in heaven for that kind of love, I don't think it necessarily means a greater mansion or a bigger house in heaven. I think it means your joy will be so rich when you celebrate with Jesus and the angels and all those who end up with you in heaven because you show them the love of God here and now. Wow, what a blessing, what a party that will be. That's your mission here. It's not to be goody-two-shoes Christian boys and girls. It's not to show up in church every Sunday out of obligation. It's to love as God loves. Your friends, yes. Your family, sure. Your neighbors, okay. But your enemies and adversaries, those on the opposite side of the political aisle, anyone who might not love you back, learn to love them. You'll know what it means to love with agape love, the way God first loved you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this question today and for reminding us what the gospel looks like, what love looks like in the flesh. Teach us to be a church that's founded on love. Love is so primary in scripture. We want to prioritize it the way your word does. It's easier said than done. We'd like to just stick to loving the people who love us back and who deserve it in our estimation. Remind us that all of us have been undeserving and toxic in your eyes, but you loved us nonetheless. Thank you for coming to us where we are, meeting us in our own Eden, in our own shame, clothed in our own kinds of fig leaves, and for loving us so well. We thank you for loving us thus far and for the way your love continues to overcome in us and in this broken world. We thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.